In the late 70s, banking wasn't a job you went into to make large sums of money. Filled with losers, like selling insurance or accounting. And if banking was boring, then the bond department at the bank was straight up comatose. We all know about bonds. You give them to your snot-nosed kid when he turns 15. Maybe when he's 30, he makes 100 bucks. Boring. That is until Louis Ranieri came on the scene at Solomon Brothers. You might not know who he is, but he changed your life more than Michael Jordan, the iPod, and YouTube put together. <laughs> hey, gentlemen, let's get some money in here. Let's make some money. What do you say? You see, Lewis didn't know it yet, but he'd already changed banking forever with one simple idea. The mortgage-backed security, or private-label MBS. You've got your average person's mortgage, fixed rate, 30 years, boring, safe, small payoff, right? But when you have thousands of them all bundled together, suddenly the yield goes up, but the risk is still small because, well, they're mortgages. And who doesn't pay their mortgage? What exactly is the credit rating on this bond? This bond, gentlemen, is AAA rated. This is exactly what the Michigan State Pension Fund has been looking for. I'll buy 20 million. Oh, come on, live over there. 25 million. <laughs> the money came raining down. And America barely noticed as its number one industry became boring old banking. And then one day, almost 30 years later in 2008, it all came crashing down. That clip was from a movie called The Big Short, and it attempted to explain the financial crisis that most of us remember that happened in the year 2008. The New York Times estimated that the total loss of that financial crisis, just to the United States alone, was 7.8 million jobs and 25 trillion, not billion, $25 trillion. Now, during that time, if you were watching Wall Street and banks, you probably heard this phrase, too big to fail. There's a too big to fail theory that came along that asserts that there are certain corporations, especially if they're financial corporations in nature, that are so large, they're so interconnected, and they are so vital to the economy of the United States, they simply cannot be allowed to fail, even if the government has to intervene to save them. The theory is they're just too big to fail. Well, tell that to the Lehman Brothers. Behind Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and Merrill Lynch, Lehman Brothers was the fourth largest investment bank in the United States. It was founded in 1850, operated for 158 years until the unthinkable happened. On September the 15th, 2008, after 158 years being in business, it filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which to this day is still the largest bankruptcy ever filed in the history of this nation. And if you remember, it set off a chain reaction, a global financial meltdown that the entire world experienced, the entire world felt, and we're still feeling the effects of some of it today. So too big to fail. Well, um, tell that to Goliath. Too big to fail. Tell that to Old Testament Israel, the nation that God even said he chose 
for himself. Too big to fail. Tell that to the Roman Empire. Too big to fail. Tell that to the Soviet Union. The truth of the matter is there is nothing too big to fail and there's no one too big to fail except the God who created everything. With everything else and anything else, the old saying really is true, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Now, truth be told, we all fail and we fail miserably. We can all fall and we can fall hard. That's true of corporations and nations, kings and queens, millionaires and billionaires. And it's why we are in need of the greatest gift God has ever offered, which is his grace through Jesus Christ. We have been in a series that we've called Real Grace, R-E-E-L. And we've been in the book of Romans because when you read the book of Romans, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to realize it doesn't just read like a book. It really could easily be made into a movie because it has everything you would want in a great movie. It has an outstanding director, the greatest Christian who ever lived probably, named the Apostle Paul. It has a great setting, the entire world, wonderful supporting cast, you and me. It has a plot that's thick with evil and sin and wickedness and rebellion and grace and mercy and love. And of course, it has, it has the greatest hero of all time. His name is Jesus. So if you brought a copy of God's Word today, if you've got an iPad, smartphone, whatever electronic device you happen to use, I want you to turn to the book of Romans. If you don't know where that is, it's the sixth chapter in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Now, we're going to skip down to the last section of this chapter where Paul is going to tell us just how big God is. Let me kind of put it to you this way. If the first eight chapters of Romans was a song, if they were a song, the last nine verses of this chapter would be the highest note of that song because Paul is going to lay out not just for believers, but for unbelievers, just how great this gracious God really is and why both in this life and in the life to come, everybody should want to know this God and love this God and serve this God and obey this God and worship this God and spend eternity with this God and be under the grace of this God. Now, let me tell you, there's not a person here, there's not a person listening to me right now that is not in need of this message. Because I promise you, if I talk to every one of you long enough and you could talk to me and you'd hear my testimony, everyone here has been hurt by somebody's failure. Either your failure or someone else's failure. Some of you live with rejection. Some of you live with criticism. Some of you live in fear. You're worried about your future. You're worried about your spiritual future, your physical future, your financial future. And there is an angst. There is an unsettledness. There's an anxiousness in our nation right now. It's as thick as a brick. I mean, you can walk outside and you can almost feel it. And so as we're heading toward the climactic part of this movie that we've been watching, I want you to see with me today a God that is too big to fail even if everyone else fails. A God who is too big to fail even if everything else fails. So we're going to answer the question that Paul gives us today and that is just how big is God? Well, let me just tell you this. Our God is so big that his faithfulness will never fail you. God's faithfulness will never fail you. Now, this section begins with a question that leads into a series of other questions. We're going to pick up in verse 31. Here's the question Paul asked. 
What then shall we say in response to these things? Now, question is, so what are these things that Paul is talking about? Well, he's been, what he's talking about is what we've been talking about for the last several weeks. Every human being on earth is a sinner. We were all born in sin. We were all born with a rebellious heart against God. And all sin is under the wrath of God. But God, because of his love for us, sends his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. He brings him back from the dead so that he might bring us into a permanent relationship with him, even though we did not deserve it. You say, well, why did he do that? It's all because of this one word we keep coming back to. It's the word grace. So Paul's question, in effect, is, now what should we say about that in light of everything God has done to bring us into his family, to bring us into his heart, to bring us into his presence, what should we say about that? And what he's going to do is he's going to show us just all that this proves about this God of grace. So he goes on to ask this question. Great question, by the way. Listen to this. If God is for us, who could be against us? Well, just let that sink in. If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? By the way, grammatically in the Greek language, that's really not a very good translation. Grammatically, the, the question is assumed. It's kind of a rhetorical question. The word if really should be translated since or because. Since God is for us, because God is for us, who could be against us? This is not a hypothesis. It's not a theory. It is a fact. God is for us. God is for me. God is for you. As a matter of fact, turn to your neighbor right now. I want you to do this. Turn to your neighbor right now. And I want you to point. I know it's rude to point, but this time I want you to point. Point to them and say this. God is for you. All right? Do it again. God is for you. Now let that sink in. Just let that sink in. If God is for you, that doesn't just mean game on. That means game over. That word for literally means in our behalf. In other words, what Paul is saying is God is working for us. Now, I bet you've never heard a pastor say this, but I want you to think about this. In a real sense, God's on our side. God proved he was on our side when he sent Jesus. God proved he was on our side when he offered his grace. God proves he's on our side when he offers us his forgiveness. God is on our side. Now, I know it's a trite saying, but it's true. If it's just you and God, you're in the majority. You've heard it said many times, God plus one is a majority. Now, again, this is actually a rhetorical question where you get the same answer no matter how you ask the question. For example, let's say you said, uh, okay, well, if God is for me, who in reality can be against me? What is the answer? Nobody. If God is for us, what can be against us? What's the answer? Nothing. If God is for us, when can something be against us? The answer is never. If God is for us, where can anything be against us? And the answer is nowhere. Now, if you're a believer like I am, if you're a follower of Christ, you may be sitting there thinking right now, <laughs> sorry, but I know a lot of things are against me. The world's against me, sin is against me, temptation's against me, Satan is against me, culture is against me, society is against me. And what Paul is simply wanting you to understand is this, 
That all may be true, and it probably is true. In fact, I'll say it is true. But what Paul is saying is, when God is for you, it doesn't matter who's against you. It doesn't matter how many are against you. However, that could raise this question. Well, how do I know that this God is for me? Paul says, okay, here's the proof. Listen to this. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, obviously talking about Jesus, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Now, what Paul is obviously doing, he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. What is the greatest need? We've already established this in the first seven chapters of Romans. What is the greatest need every sinner on earth has? We need a Savior, and we need salvation. Those are our two greatest needs. We need a Savior, and we need salvation. Well, guess what? God provided both when he gave his own son, Jesus, to die for every sinner and to offer every sinner salvation. So here's the point Paul is making. Okay, so if God has already met the greatest need we will ever have, then here's the question. Will he not meet any other need that you have? If God has met our eternal need, will he not meet every earthly need that we have? This is a picture of my grandson, Connor. Now, I know you're like me. You just instantly fell in love with this kid, right? And I don't blame you. The most beautiful little boy I guess I've ever laid my eyes on, except for my other three grandchildren. And I have to include my three sons or they'll get mad too. But this is a picture of my youngest grandson. Now, you don't have to guess whether or not that little fella owns his pop. You, you don't really have to guess whether or not I would never, ever give the life of that little boy for anybody. But I want you to suppose. I want you to suppose you were to come to me, and let's suppose I could do this. I want you to suppose that you were to come to me and you were asked for Connor. You were you would ask me, would you give Connor to me for me to have forever for the rest of my life? Now, just imagine that I was willing to do that. Just imagine I was willing and able to say, sure, you can take this little boy. You can have them the rest of your life. All right, let's suppose I did that. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you think that if you said, well, by the way, could I have his clothes and could I have his toys and could I have his play, playpen? Do you think I turned you down? You say, well, of course not. No, if I'm going to give you him, I'm certainly going to give you anything that would go with him. So I want you to imagine, for example, that you entered into a drawing at a local jewelry store. Let me just give, give you this example. Let's suppose that you found out, you, you put, went in and filled out a card, dropped your name in a, in a box, and you won the drawing, and you won a $10,000 diamond necklace. So you get notified you won this necklace. So you go down to the jewelry store, and you collect your prize, and a big crowd's gathered. It's all in the news. So a big crowd's gathered to see this presentation, and the manager puts the necklace around your neck, and everyone's taking pictures, and everyone's clapping, everyone's applauding. And then you looked at the manager as you're about to leave, and you say, hey, by the way, do you mind if I had the box this necklace came in so I could take it home in a box? Now, do you think that guy's going to look at you and say, are you kidding me? How selfish and ungrateful are you? I mean, you can at least pay for the box. Well, of course not. If the guy will give you the necklace, of course he'll give you the box. Now, here's the point Paul is making. If God gave his son for us while we were still sinners in rebellion against him, 
How, we, how, how will he not give us everything else we need now that we are his sons and now that we are his daughters who love him and are under his grace? Point one, God's faithfulness will never fail you. Too big to fail. You know how big God is? God's court will never condemn you. God's faithfulness will never fail you. God's court will never condemn you. See, there's another benefit that, that, that we receive when we receive the grace of God through faith in the Son of God that you probably haven't thought about. Here's, here's the point. The one thing that nobody is immune to, if, if you've got a healthy conscience, now you may not have a healthy conscience, but if you've got a healthy conscience, there's one thing that afflicts every one of us, and that's guilt. Because we do sin. We do wrong. We don't always hit the bullseye in the way we live. We continually find ourselves dragged back into God's courtroom to face charges. Well, then Paul says this in verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Now, that phrase, bring any charge, is one word in the Greek language. It's actually a legal term, and it literally means to call in. And it refers to a, a, an official summons to appear in a court of law to face an accusation that's been brought against you. Well, here's the question. So when Paul says, who will bring a charge against us? Who's he talking about? Who are these witnesses that are lined up against us? Well, there's several of them. For example, our sins. Our sins are a witness. They, they sometimes accuse us. And then we've all had the experience, sometimes other people will line up against us. They will accuse us of doing wrong. But the biggest accuser of all is Satan. As a matter of fact, his full-time job is being a prosecuting attorney against us every single time that we do wrong. The apostle John said this about him in the book of Revelation. He said, for the accuser, that is Satan, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters, God's family, who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. John said, and I hate to break this news to you, but John said, you know what? Nobody ever sins in secret. Now, you may think you do. You may th think you can wait till dark, dark comes. You may think you can wait till the sun goes down. You may think you can walk into the building. You may think you can turn off the lights. You may think you can shut off all of the cameras and all the tape recorders. And you may think you can do wrong and nobody's watching, but there's always at least one watching and maybe two. Every time we do wrong, number one, God is always watching. And number two, Satan is usually watching. Now, here's what happens. When believers do wrong, what does Satan do? He drags them into God's courtroom and he makes his charge. Now, here's the bad news. The truth of the matter is that when Satan brings these accusations to God about our sins, He's usually not exactly lying. Many times he's really telling the truth. As a matter of fact, he has us dead to, dead to rights. It's not hearsay. It is not circumstantial evidence. Usually we've been caught red-handed because we do fail and we do sin. So here we are in God's courtroom and here's the devil and here's Satan or here's our conscience or whatever it may be and we're brought before God's courtroom even though we know the Lord and love the Lord and we've been saved but yet we failed, we blew it again. So we're in this courtroom and we've got these charges against us and we know deep down we've been caught red-handed. What's our defense? And then Paul says this, it is God 
who justifies. Now, if you were here, you may remember what the word justify means. We talked about this earlier. The word justify is another legal term, and, and it literally means you are declared not guilty. Now, there's only one person in a court of law that can declare you not guilty, right? We all know who that is. Who is it? Right, it's the judge. Only the judge can declare you not guilty. Well, who is the judge in this case? All right, listen to this. If you are under the grace of God and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, then the judge is your heavenly Father. Now, get this thought in your mind. Hold on to this thought. You're in God's courtroom. He's the judge. The accusation has been brought. You've been caught red-handed. You know, you know you've done whatever is, is being brought against you, but you also know that the judge is your heavenly Father. Well, it actually gets better. It actually gets better because Paul says this now in verse 34. Well, who then is the one who condemns? That is, who is the one that's therefore going to say, yep, you did it, you're guilty, you got to pay the crime, you got to do the time. Who is the one who condemns? And then Paul amazingly says this, no one. How can it be no one? Because Christ Jesus who died more than that was raised to life. Now watch this, this is so wonderful is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now watch this. This is so great. That word condemned is another legal term, and it doesn't just refer to the indictment. That's the accusation. It doesn't just refer to the charge. It actually refers to the verdict. Now, if there's any doubt as to what the verdict is going to be, all you've got to do is look at your defense attorney. Well, who's the defense attorney? Well, who is interceding for us? It's Jesus. He is our defense attorney. You say, wait a minute. You mean the Jesus that died for me? Yep. You mean the Jesus that was raised from the dead for me? Yep. He's taking our case. He is defending us. Now, if you're not getting the picture yet, let me kind of paint it for you. So you're in the courtroom. You're in God's courtroom, and you're the defendant. And you look across the table at the prosecuting attorney, and I mean, your heart sinks because it's the devil himself. And you know, man, I, my goose is cooked. I am doomed. Stick a fork in me. I'm done. Because he calls witness after witness. He, 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 he has pictures. He has photographs. He has tape recordings. He has signed confessions. He's got exhibits from A to Z. And so you know you're guilty. And Satan presents his case, and he sits down, and you go, man, I don't have a prayer. And then it gets worse. Because to your amazement, Jesus, your defense attorney, doesn't call any rebuttal witnesses. He doesn't even call you to the stand to defend yourself. Now you know you really are damned. So closing arguments are given. And the devil gets up and he makes this eloquent, impassioned, airtight case against you. He points out that everything that he said is true. And he says to, to, to the court... This person, you are guilty beyond a shadow of a reasonable doubt. And then you can't wait for Jesus to get up and say something, but to your amazement, he gets up, but he doesn't say a word. And you think, oh, great, I, I got the wrong guy. And then without a word, he just holds up two nail-pierced hands. And he shows it to the judge. And the gavel comes down. And the verdict is rendered. And you can hear it all over eternity. Not 
guilty. The defendant is totally righteous in my eyes. Case dismissed. Now listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, don't, don't miss this. All of our sins have been forgiven. All of them. We have been totally, completely, finally, eternally justified by the supreme judge of the supreme court of the universe. As a matter of fact, before any charge is ever brought against you, the verdict is already in. Do you know why? Get the picture. The judge is your father. The defense attorney is the judge's son and your savior. And oh, by the way, he has a perfect record. He has never lost a case before this judge because you see, at the cross, your case was settled out of court. You say, man, sounds like the case is fixed. It is. It's fixed. The verdict is already in before a charge is even brought. It is God who justifies. So if this is, now, this is only true. Don't get too excited yet. This is only true if you are under the grace of God. This is only true if you placed your faith in the Son of God. This is only true if you have been to the cross, you have confessed your sins, you have received Christ into your life, only then is it true. If you're still under the law of God, if you're still trying to get to God by being good, doing your best, going to church, doing this, doing that, you are going to be found guilty and you will be condemned because you didn't keep the law perfectly. You are, sin you are a sinner and you are Guilty. But what Paul is saying is it doesn't have to be that way because of what's that word again? Grace. Now, there's one last great benefit to God's grace. God's faithfulness will never fail you. God's court will never condemn you. How big is our God? God's love will never leave you. Now, watch this. The grand conclusion of this fantastic passage comes in the form of a question ending with this dogmatic assertion about the God who is full of grace. So Paul gives us another question. Here's the question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now, think about it. There's insecurity everywhere. I mean, think about what we're facing right now in our own country. We're facing financial deficits. We're, we're facing racial tension. Around the world, we're facing worldwide terrorism, rogue nations developing nuclear weapons. We've got cultural upheaval. We've got social tensions across the globe. And then Paul comes along and says, look, in the midst of all of it, at the height of all of it, one thing is absolutely guaranteed. God's loving arms will be wrapped around us and will never let us go. The light of his love will never go dark. The fire of his love will never go out. The ocean of his love will never dry up. Listen, this God, this God of grace and this God of love and this God of mercy, this God loves us so much that not only does he walk with us through thick or thin in every trouble we face, he says, look, I want to go ahead and guarantee you something. Absolute, complete, ultimate victory in whatever you face. So listen to verse 37. This is so wonderful. Nope. In all these things, that is everything, anything you're going to face in your life, I don't care what it is, 
divorce, cancer, criticism, hypocrisy, lost jobs, lost money, doesn't matter. He said, in all these things, we are not just conquerors, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. No, unfortunately, followers of Jesus are not guaranteed immunity to temptation or tribulation or tragedy or trouble. But here's what we are promised. A loving God will give us victory over every single one of them. And then Paul just can't help himself. He comes back to the love of God. And I think he does this because he wants to show us not only how well he knows us, but how well God knows us. Because you see, see, we, when we think about, well, we'll never be separated from the love of God. God will always love us. But yet, then we, we kind of struggle with the, dur with the durability of love. And let me tell you why. We, we, we look at other people, right? Well, we see other people quit loving other people every day for just any reason. I cannot tell you how many times I've had a married couple come into my office to see me for counseling. I've heard it time after time after time. Well, what is your problem? I just don't love him anymore. I just don't love her anymore. I, well, I never really loved him. I never really loved her. Friends fall out every day. Friends quit loving each other. Parents and children turn their love into hate. And what we know deep down is that most human love is limited. Most human love is conditional. Most people say, I love you, but here's what they mean. I love you if blank is true, and I'll quit loving you when blank is no longer true. So we look at others and we wonder, is there really a kind of love that will never leave you? And then we look at ourselves, and let's be honest. We have trouble believing that a God who is so perfect could love us who are so imperfect. We think to ourselves, how could a lovable God love unlovable me? Because deep down, here's what every one of us knows to be true, and it is true. We're not worthy of his love. We don't deserve his love. And so Paul just addresses that head on, verse 38. For I am convinced. Now watch, he just starts thinking of everything he can throw up on the wall. Neither death nor life. Neither angels nor demons. Neither the present nor the future. Nor any powers. Neither height nor depth. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Put simply, Paul says, look, God's love is unlimited and God's love is unconditional. It doesn't matter what you do, God will still love you. It doesn't matter. You can desert God like the disciples did. He'll still love you. You can deny God like Peter did. He'll still love you. You can doubt God like we all do sometimes. He will still love you. So think about those words again. He says, nothing and no one can ever separate you from the love of God. You may be separated from your spouse. You may be separated from your parents. You may be separated from your kids. Or if you're like me, you might be separated from your hair. But you will never, 
ever be separated from the love of God. And I love what Paul says in verse 39 to kind of sum it all up. It's almost like I've thought about everything I can think of that people might say might separate them from the love of God. And so he says, so let me just kind of put it to you this way. Now listen to it again. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's almost as if Paul is saying, save your breath. Quit wasting your time. Nothing inside of you and nothing outside of you can ever separate you from the love of God. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you some words you will never, ever hear God say to you. Never. You won't even hear these words if you die denying him, if you die refusing to give your life to Jesus Christ. You will never hear God say these words, I don't love you anymore. The bottom line of everything that Paul has been saying is this. This God of grace will never fail you. This God of grace will never forsake you. And this God of grace will never forget you. Let me ask you a question. Do you really know how much God loves you? I mean, really. Do you really have an idea how much this God of grace really loves you? I'll tell you how you can at least get a glimpse of it. Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because let me tell you what really happened at the cross. The cross is where God said, I'd rather die than to live without you. I would rather die than to live without you. So here's what I'd like to ask you to do. I, I want to encourage you to do something right now. Okay, I want all of you to do this. Okay, just kind of put everything down. And I want you, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about a word. It may be two words or three, but I, I want you to think about a word or two that would perfectly describe a struggle that you're facing right now in your life. It, it may be a worry. It may be a problem. It may be a situation. It may be a relationship. It may be an affliction. It may be an addiction. It may be a headache. It may be a heartache. Okay, whatever it is, think about that word. Then what I want you to do right now is either in your Bible or on that passage where you are in your iPhone or your iPad or write down or whatever, I want you to write that, write that word down beside this, that passage of Scripture that we just read. I want you to write that word down. And I want you to remember this. When you believe that the whole world is against you, God is for you. God's faithfulness will never fail you. When sin and Satan are accusing you, and putting you on a guilt trip, God's court will never condemn you. And when you think nobody at all cares about you, God's love will never leave you. Why? Because the God of love and the God of mercy and the God of grace and the God of forgiveness is just too big to fail. Let's pray together. With his bowed, with eyes closed. There's some of you here today, and you, just, you didn't just need a sermon. <laughs> you need a Savior. You need Jesus. You need God in your life. And that will not and cannot happen until you do three things. Realize you're a sinner in need of a Savior. 
Repent of your sin and be willing to turn away from the way you've been and the person you are and receive Jesus Christ into your life as your Lord and as your Savior. And I want you to do something right now. I'm going to invite you to do this. If you're sitting there and you're saying, this is exactly what I needed to hear. I need the grace of God. I want to know this God whose faithfulness will never fail me, whose court will never condemn me, whose love will never leave me. I want to know that God. Then I want you to pray this prayer right now. I'm going to say it out loud. I want you to pray it in your heart right now. Right now, I want you to say this. I want you to say, dear God, I need grace. Big time need grace. I believe Jesus Christ is the Savior that I need. Lord Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. In my heart, I believe that God raised you from the dead. And right now, I am confessing you as my Lord. I am trusting you as my Savior. I am repenting of my sin. I'm asking for your forgiveness. And I'm surrendering my life to you. Now, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, I want you to do this right now. Right now while I'm talking, I want you to do this. I want you to take that registration card that's attached to your worship guide. Go ahead and just tear it off right now. Everybody do it. If you prayed with me that prayer, do this. Tear that card off. Get a pen or a pencil. I want you to sign your name to it. Give us some contact information. It can be a phone number, email address, whatever. Give us some contact information. And there's a box on that card that says, Today I pray to receive Christ as my Lord and my Savior. I want you to check off that box. All right, maybe that you're here today and you don't need to do that. Maybe you say, you know, Pastor, I have done that. I, I have trusted the Lord with, with my life and I've given him my heart. Well, let me ask you this. Since he publicly died for you, are you willing to publicly profess your faith in him? You say, yeah, how do I do that? By being baptized, biblically baptized. And some of you have never been biblically baptized. I'm gonna ask you today to check off that box that says, today I have decided to be biblically baptized. And by the way, I'm going to be baptizing all three services on Easter, and I would love to have the privilege of baptizing you. And if you would like for me to baptize you on that Easter uh, weekend, if you'll just put right down beside that little box, put in parentheses, Easter, we'll contact you and let you know when you can be baptized on that Easter Sunday, that Easter weekend. And then it may be that you've been coming here for a while and you say, man, I, I want to be a part of this church. Well, that's right. That's, I'm glad to hear that because we call people who become a part of this church partners. And if you'd like to begin the partnership process, do the same thing. Fill that card out right now and check off that box that says, I'd like to begin the partnership process with Cross Point Church. Now, what do you do with those cards once you finish filling those out? Here's what I want you to do, one of two things. As you leave today in our building, we have what we call giving centers. They're boxes with slots. You can just drop your card in that box. But what I really wish you would do is come out to my table, the pastor's table, We'll have pastors out there who will be willing to meet with you and talk with you. And all you've got to do is just take your card to them. That's it. Just take your card, give it to them. Don't say a word. They'll read your card. They'll see what decision you've made for Jesus today. And there will be an encourager that will just simply take you aside for a moment, get your information, and give you some information that will help you take your next step with God. Now, for all of us in this room, you're a follower of Jesus. And I want you to remember this. You're going to fail God. You're going to fail yourself. Others are going to fail you, but God is too big to fail. And Father, we thank you that you are just that. In Jesus' name, amen.
Hey, Alfred, um, according to my calculation, that message was about 